0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: The passions are an important topic for Aquinas, and he discusses them in detail in a variety of places. In his early commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences, in his disputed questions, De Veritate in the Summa Contra Gentiles in some of his Aristotle commentaries and elsewhere. His longest and most developed treatment is in the Summa Theologiae. In questions 80 to 82 of the Prima Pars, the first part, he gives an extremely high level and general account of the passions as part of his analysis of the powers of the human soul. In the Prima Secundes, the first part of part two, He gives a detailed account of the different types of passions, their causes and effects, and other matters. This longer discussion is often referred to as the treatise on the passions. And when I say it's detailed, I mean detailed. There are 26 questiones, well over 200 articles, and the whole thing is on the order of 50,000 words. So that's a lot of passion. It's easy enough to get an approximate idea of what Aquinas has to say about the passions, both in general and in particular, but when one looks closer, there turn out to be a number of difficulties that aren't easy to clear up. That's true of many topics that Aquinas addresses. Pretty often, he's not as clear as he seems to be at first. Even when he is as clear as one would want him to be, that doesn't mean He goes into as much detail as we might like. And anyway, the topics he is interested in discussing aren't always the topics we really want to hear about. It's it's important not to get too frustrated by this. He wasn't writing for us. In this talk, I'm gonna do three main things. First, I'm going to give a quick initial look at what passions are in the first place followed by a longer discussion of what, for Aquinas, the different types of passion are. Second, I will go into some of the trickier topics, where it's a bit harder to pin down just what Aquinas means. I won't be able to resolve all of them, but at least, perhaps, I'll manage to raise some topics for discussion. Finally, I'll make a little speech about the place of the passions in human life, including the importance of keeping them in their place. Okay, so steering clear of the difficulties that will occupy us later in the talk, for now let's just focus on the basics. Beginning with the question of what Aquinas is talking about in the treatise on the passions, roughly it's the same thing that we would call feelings or emotions. Love and hate, desire and aversion, hope, despair, fear, daring, joy or pleasure, sorrow or pain, anger, that sort of thing. Now it's not really that sort of thing because I just gave you the complete list. But don't worry if you didn't write it all down because we'll be coming back to it. If you already know something about Aquinas on the passions, you may be getting suspicious. Haven't I just listed certain things that are according to Aquinas' account of the passions, not really passions at all? Well, whether or not all of these things are really what Aquinas would call passions They are definitely things he discusses in the treatise on the passions. This is in fact one of the tricky issues that we'll be getting to in the second part of the talk. So try to be patient. If the passions are feelings or emotions, how can they be categorized? This question becomes particularly pressing as soon as you realize that the list of possible passions is enormous and possibly unlimited. There's the, there's the desire for pepperoni. And there's the desire for mushrooms. And there's the desire for pepperoni and mushrooms together. And there's the desire for dough and cheese. And there's the desire for all things together in the form of a pizza. Such a list could go on more or less forever. And it's just a list of desires. There are also hopes, fears, and so on. So the topic obviously needs some taming and organizing. Aquinas accomplishes the taming and organizing by deploying a few key distinctions. These distinctions are, to a significant extent, already there in the philosophical tradition and even in common sense. The first distinction is between concupiscible and irascible passions. Now, these are the standard words But unfortunately, they carry baggage that was potentially misleading in Aquinas' time, and uh, it's potentially misleading in our time as well. So let's start with the word concupiscence. Sometimes it's a morally neutral word indicating bodily desires. Sometimes it's a morally neutral word indicating any sort of desire. Sometimes it's a morally judgy word, meaning a bad kind of desire. But none of these is really what's going on when we speak of concupiscible passions. Likewise, the word irascible nowadays means something like cranky or irritable. But what Aquinas has in mind when talking about irascible passions is much broader than this and probably doesn't include crankiness anyway, although I'm not totally sure. I don't have like a worked out philosophy of crankiness. Try as best you can to ignore any preconceived notions or connotations that you have associated with the words concupiscible and irascible, and just focus on the descriptions that Aquinas um, tries to capture and then that he sticks these labels onto. So to pave the way for understanding the distinction, let's first note that we never just desire things. We only desire things insofar as we apprehend them through sensation or judgment. You can't want something if you don't even know that it exists. What's more, we never merely apprehend things. We apprehend them as this or as that. You apprehend something as a nuthatch, or you apprehend a nuthatch as small or as able to move head downwards on tree trunks, for example. Now, the kinds of passions we have for things depend on which things we apprehend, through sensation or intellect, and on how we apprehend them. But not just any old way of apprehending them is relevant. To understand the passions, we need to focus on ways in which we apprehend things as good or bad. If you apprehend something and you apprehend it as good or bad, then you'll have a concupiscible passion with regard to it. For example, you might want to get it. So let's say you're walking down the sidewalk and you see some money lying there. Presumably you will apprehend this as a good thing, and thus you'll be drawn towards it. On the other hand, if you see some dog poop, then presumably you will apprehend this as a bad thing and you will want to avoid it. So far so good, but there's another and more complicated way to apprehend things as good or bad. You can apprehend them as good and hard to get or as bad and hard to avoid. To use the traditional lingo, these are not the good and bad as such, but the arduous good and the arduous bad. In such cases, what can get aroused is an irascible passion. If you see a pot of gold, but it's all the way at the end of a rainbow, you may develop a hope to acquire it, or you may fall into despair at the prospect of getting there before anyone else does. Of course, If you actually know anything about rainbows, you'll realize that there's really no such thing as being located at the end of a rainbow. But that's another matter. Passions are based on apprehensions, and apprehensions can be wrong. Is this a foreshadowing of the last section of the talk? Yes. You might wonder whether for any given object that you have a passion about, you must have either a concupiscible passion for it or an irascible passion for it. Should we say, for example, that you want the money that's lying at your feet, but that the pot of gold case is different much as it involves hope rather than desire? No. Aquinas says that an irascible passion for something presupposes a concupiscible passion for it. You want the pot of gold. And then, because it's hard to get, an additional passion arises, namely hope. You can have a concupiscible passion for something without having an irascible passion for it, but you can't have an irascible passion for something without already having a concupiscible passion for it. The same setup applies where the object is bad. If you see some dog poop on the road, an aversion arises because that's disgusting. But you don't, let's say, fear that you'll get dog poop on your shoes, because avoiding dog poop on the road is easy. It's an evil, but it's not an arduous evil. On the other hand, if the culprit starts chasing you, then you will not only have an aversion to being bitten, but also fear, because avoiding a savage dog is not easy. Okay, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that savage dogs don't scare you. Because you always carry pepper spray and you're very good at using it. That's fine, but it allows us to notice something worth noticing. Whether an irascible passion is called forth depends on whether the good or bad is difficult to obtain or avoid, but whether it's difficult, is to some extent relative to the agent. Some things are hard for anyone, but some things are hard only for some people. If it sounds funny to speak of an irascible passion for a cookie, that's only because you've never seen the passion of a baby who's not yet learned to crawl properly. So that's the distinction between concupiscible and irascible passions. Now let's look at three more distinctions One distinction is the distinction between passions that are aroused by good objects and passions that are aroused by bad objects. Desire, for example, is aroused by good objects, while aversion is aroused by bad objects. This distinction shows up in the class of concupiscible passions and in the class of irascible passions. A second distinction is the distinction between passions that lead you towards an object and passions that lead you away from an object. Interestingly, this distinction does not correspond or line up with whether the object is good or bad. Hope, for example, draws us towards a good object that is hard to get, whereas despair causes us to give up and walk away from a good object that is hard to get. Again, fear causes us to withdraw from a bad thing that is hard to avoid, whereas daring causes us to go towards the hard to avoid thing in order to beat it off. This distinction, the distinction between approach and receding, shows up only in the class of irascible passions. A third distinction, has to do with different ways in which a single object can arouse passions in a person. Let's take the case of you and that bit of money that I mentioned earlier. One thing the money can do is it can simply make you like it. Another thing it can do is to draw you towards itself by giving you a desire for it. The last thing it can do, if you succeed in getting it, is to make you glad that you have it. So the object can give you an inclination to move, it can induce movement, and it can give you rest once the movement is over. We have just seen how one object can produce different concupiscible passions in the same person, depending on whether the person has the object or not. This applies to irascible passions as well, but in a limited way. Aquinas says that the first thing that an object does, inspire love or hatred, is presupposed by the irascible passions rather than giving rise to a difference between different types of irascible passion. The third thing an object does, give rest or maybe pain, also does not give rise to a distinction among irascible passions, but, again, just to a difference among concupiscible passions. Actually, that's not quite right, but live with it for the moment. There is, however, a distinction that arises among irascible passions. There is, however, a distinction that arises among irascible passions in terms of the second thing an object does to us. Corresponding to the concupiscible passion of desire, there's the irascible pair, hope and despair. And in addition to desiring, so in addition to desiring an arduous good, we can either hope to acquire it or despair of acquiring it. Corresponding to the concupiscible passion, aversion, there's the pair fear and daring. In addition to feeling an aversion, to an arduous bad, we either fear that it will get us or we wish to get it before it gets us. So with all these distinctions in hand, we can start laying out the various passions. So now's the time to look at your handout, <clears throat> which actually has two charts. Right? There's one at the top and one at the bottom. There's not much space between them, but they're different. So start with the first column. Passions are aroused by objects apprehended in a certain way. So the first question is, is the object apprehended as good or as bad? If it's apprehended as good, then you're on the top chart. If it's apprehended as bad, then you're on the bottom chart. In the second column, you find the basic concupiscible passion aroused by the initial apprehension of the object. If you apprehend the object is good, you like it. This is the passion of love. You may not be fanatical about it, it may not get you panting or whatever, but still, you have love for it. I mean, love might sound like a funny word, but that's just the word he uses. If, on the other hand, you apprehend something is bad, then you dislike it. This is the passion of hate, again. You may not be fanatical about it. It may not get you all upset, but still, you have a hatred for it. Don't we all hate dog poop? Of course we do. So assuming that you're not united to the object, the money or the dog poop is still on the sidewalk, then you are going to experience a passion either of desire or aversion, depending again on whether the uh, the object is apprehended by you as good or as bad this is in the third column right desire is going to be in the top part and aversion in the second bottom you desire the money or you want to avoid the dog poop i keep mentioning the way you apprehend the object i realize that it clutters up all the things that i'm saying but it's important if you were a dung beetle then you'd probably be indifferent to the money. But the dog poop, yum. It all depends on your point of view. Now, to be sure, there are better and worse points of view, but that's not relevant to the question of whether or not a particular passion is aroused. Suppose you see money lying on the sidewalk, but you fail to realize that it's covered with poison. You shouldn't want it, but you do. It's a bad object, but you apprehend it as good. And for present purposes, that's what counts. Moving on, the next question is how you understand the difficulty or ease of getting united with the good object or avoiding the bad object. Let's deal with them separately. If you think it will be easy to get the good object, then your desire will not be accompanied by either hope or despair. You'll just reach down and pick up that penny, for example. And then, once you get it, you'll be glad. You'll take pleasure in your newfound wealth. That's columns four, six, and seven in the top chart, first row. Okay. So in four, you apprehend it as easy, then you just skip over the irascible stuff. You try to get it. And then you're like, got it. If you think it will be hard to get the good object, then your desire will be accompanied by some other passion, an irascible passion. If you think it possible to get the good object, you'll have hope of acquiring it. And you'll take steps to do so. And if you succeed, you'll be glad. If you think it impossible to get the good object, you'll despair of acquiring it and walk away. All this is columns four, five, six, and seven on the top chart, second row. So the second row is the irascible line. Switching over to the bad objects now on the second chart. If you think it will be easy to avoid the bad object, then your aversion for it will not be accompanied by either hope or despair. You'll just steer around the dog poop. This is columns four and six on the bottom chart, first row. If, however, you think it will be hard to avoid the bad object, then your aversion will be accompanied by some other passion, an irascible one. If you think it possible to beat off the bad object, you'll experience daring, the desire to get it before it gets you. If you think it impossible to beat off the bad object, you'll experience fear rather than daring. This is columns four, five, and six on the bottom chart, second row. As I've tried to make explicit on the charts, the passions of desire and aversion give rise to characteristic actions. Desire leads to the attempt to bring about the union of the person with the good object, except when despair brings that to a halt while aversion leads to the attempt one way or the other to prevent the union of the person with the bad object. There's actually a deep issue here, which I will merely gesture at. Should we think of the activity of trying to get something as distinct from the desire for it and as a result of the desire, or should we think of it more as the fruition of the desire and not really as a distinct reality. And likewise, should we think of the activity of trying to avoid something as distinct from the aversion from it and a result of the aversion? Or should we think of it more as the fruition of the aversion and not really as a distinct reality? Now, if you suspect that this question that I'm raising here It's prompted by a reflection on Elizabeth Anscombe's characterization of wanting as trying to get, well, that's right. Um, Anyway, listing them separately makes certain kinds of analysis easier, which is why I've done it here. But there's a danger, if you know what I mean, of Cartesianism, right? Because you could think there's the inner passion and then there's the outer action. So there's a kind of risk here. And Cartesianism is definitely something that we should have an aversion to and that we should try hard to avoid, lest we find ourselves in considerable philosophical pain. All right, so discussing easy-to-get good objects and hard-to-get good objects, when I was doing that, I kept going from left to right on the chart until I got to the pleasure that results from unity with the bad object. But when discussing easy to avoid bad objects and hard to avoid bad objects, I didn't keep going right words until I got to the pain that results from unity with the bad object. Why not? Well, it's because there's a certain asymmetry between the two cases, which I want to talk about later when I get to a discussion of the difficulties, but for now I'll just mention the obvious thing, namely that if you do end up unified with the bad thing, the dog poop or the savage dog itself, then you experience pain, sorrow, that kind of thing. Okay, so far we have seen ten passions, love, hatred, desire, aversion, hope, despair, daring, fear, pleasure, and pain. But weirdly, Aquinas says that there are 11 passions. Right away, this should make us raise our eyebrows. 11? What a strange number for anything. The 11th passion is the passion that has no opposite, Aquinas tells us. It's anger. Anger arises sometimes when you end up unified with the hard-to-avoid bad object. If it gets you and you can't take revenge, you just feel pain. But if it gets you and you can take revenge, or any way you think you can, then you feel anger as well. I'm going to come back to that, but that's all for now. So those are, are your 11 passions. I want to get into some of the trickier issues. So there are very many interesting topics that we could now get into. I will explore only three. First, asymmetries resulting from the difference between good and bad objects. Second, whether there's really no opposite to anger. And third, a somewhat quote unquote metaphysical question about whether all these passions are really passions at all. What I mean by asymmetries resulting from the difference between good and bad objects is that there's a sort of non-parallelism in how we are related to good objects versus how we are related to bad objects. Let's recall something we saw earlier. Aquinas says that an object can inspire love. Then it can inspire the movement of desire if we don't have the object. And finally, it can give the repose that we have when the movement of desire ends, namely pleasure. Presumably, this applies in some way to the opposite case, when the object is bad. But Aquinas doesn't spell it out. Instead, he says only the same applies to the cause of repulsion. So what does it look like? One possible way to unpack it is as follows. Just as a good object produces love, then the movement of desire, and finally the rest of pleasure, so too the bad object produces hatred, then the movement of aversion or repulsion, and finally the rest of pain. But there's something wrong with thinking of it like this. Because while pleasure is the culmination and rest of desire, pain is not the culmination and rest of aversion. The culmination of aversion is the non-pain of avoiding the bad thing you might even say the pleasure of avoiding the bad thing. I'll come back to this. In other words, while pleasure is the culmination or fulfillment of desire, pain is not the culmination or fulfillment of avoidance. If pain is the culmination of anything, it's the culmination of the failure of avoidance. And let's add right away that a failure doesn't really have a culmination or a fulfillment. What follows failure is just the non-occurrence of a culmination or fulfillment. So let this be a warning to you, by the way. I mean We should all take it as a warning to ourselves. It's not wise to just say things like, and so on for the other situation. Work it out on the chalkboard, just in case there's something strange going on that requires attention. OK, so there's this asymmetry between our two charts. On the top chart, the chart for good objects, the final concupiscible passion is the fruit of the prior passions. And in particular, it's the fruit of the activity characteristic of the passion of desire. But on the bottom chart, the chart for bad objects, the final concupiscible passion or passions are not the fruit of the prior passions, nor are they the fruit of the activities characteristic of those passions, but instead the result of a failure on the part of those passions and activities. Pleasure and pain don't result from different activities in the way that, like red and blue, result from different markers. Pleasure results from the the success of an activity, and pain results from the failure of an activity. Speaking of failure, what happens when you fail not to avoid a bad but to attain a good. What is the resulting passion in that case? I think the answer has to be pain in some sense. You tried to get the pot of gold, but that rainbow just kept moving away. And finally, the skies cleared and it was gone. So sad. Also, what happens when the characteristic activity of avoidance succeeds rather than fails? Presumably, the result is pleasure. You get away from the savage dog, and then you are glad. The pain of failed pursuit and the pleasure of successful avoidance are represented on our charts in the small caps font in column seven. Again, that asymmetry comes out. On both charts, the passion listed in big caps in column seven is the passion that naturally arises when the person and the object are united. But on the top chart, the big caps passion is the natural fruit of the activity listed in column six. Whereas on the bottom chart, it's what you get when the activity listed in column six fails to bear fruit. By contrast, on the top chart, the small caps passion is what you get when the activity listed in column six fails But on the bottom chart, the small caps passion is what you get when the activity listed in column six succeeds. In one way, none of this is surprising. Since we're pursuing on the top chart and avoiding on the bottom chart, things should turn out differently. However, it's important to note that negative passions and positive passions, if I can put it that way, aren't just different, again, in the way like that red and blue are different. The negative passions are what happens. When being doesn't achieve its telos, perhaps you've heard the idea that evil is a lack of good. Okay, this is an example of that. So there are more complications here, but that's enough for now. I want to turn to my second complication, namely, whether it's really true that there's no opposite to anger. I confess that there being 11 passions just bothers me. It's not the right kind of number, Before getting to this, though, I want to raise a different sort of question about anger. Why does it arise only in connection with an arduous evil? Suppose you step on dog poop on the sidewalk. Doesn't that make you mad? It definitely makes me mad. But it's not an arduous evil. Well, I I mean, it takes a lot of work to get it off your shoe. Maybe there's something arduous here. But anyway, it's just a question I want to throw out. Like, why does Aquinas say that, Anger arises only in connection with arduous evils rather than all evils. Okay, so the main question is this. Why is there no passion in the top chart corresponding to anger in the bottom chart? Aquinas gives different reasons why anger has no opposite. In one place, he says that the various kinds of opposition that arise between passions don't apply to anger. In another place, he says that because anger is, in a way, a mixture of other passions, hope and sadness, It can't have any opposite of its own. Setting all that aside, anger is a passion that makes us want to attack the person who caused us the bad thing that we were unable to avoid. When the dog bites us, we are in pain from our wound, and also we would like to choke the dog. Well, if there is a passion for doing evil to a person who has harmed us, why can't there be a passion for doing good to a person who has benefited us? like gratitude. Why isn't gratitude the opposite of anger? I take pleasure in the good I have received, and I feel gratitude towards the person that I have received it from. I don't know who first had this idea that gratitude like corresponds to anger. I know that I got it from my colleague Kevin White, although he is not entirely sure where he might have gotten it from. Anyway, I am grateful to him for passing it on. Now, let me turn to the third complication, namely the question of what even counts as a passion. Aquinas is not as clear on this as you might think. Very early in the treatise on the passions, in uh, Prima Secundae, question 22, article 1, he asks whether there are any passions of the soul at all. Of course, he says yes, but it turns out to depend quite a lot on what you mean by passion. First, he says here, the word passion can refer to any case in which a thing receives something, whether or not this receiving requires giving something up. The air can be illuminated by receiving light without losing anything, just as you can learn something without having to forget something else in order to you know, make room for it. On this use of the word passion, Understanding the Pythagorean theorem counts as a passion. This is far from crazy, because understanding is a case of the mind passively adapting itself to reality. But this is pretty far from the usual use of the word passion. And it's clearly not relevant to the use of the word that will dominate the treatise on the passions. It's just too broad. Aquinas then gives a second and narrower sense of the word passion. A thing receives something while also giving something up. Consider how, for example, a fence receives greenness, the color green, only hand in hand with giving up its whiteness. This, he says, is the proper sense of the word passion. He then subdivides this second sense into two cases. To A, a thing receives something suitable while losing something unsuitable. Aquinas' example is receiving health while losing sickness. To be, a thing receives something unsuitable while losing something suitable. Aquinas' example is receiving sickness and losing health. And this last one, he says, is the most proper sense of the word passion. Does Aquinas announce that henceforth He's only going to deploy the most proper sense, washing his hands of the less proper senses. He does not. Instead, he says that passions are found in the soul in all three of these senses. As he goes on in the treatise on the passions, however, he clearly does not include passions in the first sense, but only in the second and third senses. Even those, however, are not really what he is targeting. He does not, that is to say, restrict himself to discussing, under the heading The Passions of the Soul, only those cases of receptivity that are tied to bodily changes and that involve simultaneous receiving and giving up. That category is, in one way, too broad for Aquinas' concerns, and in another, Um, uh, another way too narrow. So it's too broad in the following sense. If passion, in the relevant sense, includes all cases involving bodily reception, then sensation, seeing, hearing, and the like, would count as passions. And so in the very next article, question 22, article 2, Aquinas says that passions belong to appetite rather than cognition. The passions in the sense Aquinas is concerned with are something like desires about things, not apprehensions of what they are or what they're like. So passions are not just any kind of bodily reception, but bodily reception of the desiring sort. I'm doubting myself here. I can't, I feel like bodily, I've introduced it badly. I can't, I'm not gonna go reread what I wrote, but just let me clarify something. For Aquinas, it's the kind of um, reception where you receive something, but you have to give something up in order to do so, that's characteristic of the corporeal or bodily world and not of like spiritual. That's how that got in there. If I didn't make that clear, I apologize. Okay, so. There's more, so, but bodily reception like that is too broad for what he really wants to talk about because, like, it includes sensation. Okay, and yet to speak of bodily reception of the desiring sort is too narrow because Aquinas, notwithstanding his terminological remarks in Question 22, Article 1, pretty clearly does not restrict his attention to passions in this relatively proper sense Again and again, he discusses things that happen in the soul without the relevant tie to the body. To give just one example, in question 26, article 2, he asks whether love is a passion. In his answer, he unfortunately uses the word concupiscible in a way that is different from the way that we were using it earlier. So we do need to be careful. But anyway, here's what he says about whether love is a passion. Since, therefore love consists in a change wrought in the appetite by the appetible object. It is evident that love is a passion, properly so-called according as it is in the concupiscible faculty, in a wider and extended sense according as it is in the will. The will for Aquinas is a special kind of rational appetite, and acts of willing are not bodily acts in the way that bodily appetites are. Bodily appetites, appetites that belong to the quote unquote concupiscible faculty, are passions properly so called, but non-bodily love is still a passion in the wider sense of the term. And the point I'm trying to make is this. In his treatise on the passions, Aquinas discusses not merely passions in the proper sense, but also passions in a broader sense. Aquinas is not too scrupulous to discuss in his treatise on the passions something that's only a passion in the broader sense. To drive this home, let me bring up an account of passion that occurs later in the treatise on the passions in question 41, article 1. In response to the question of whether fear is a passion of the soul, Aquinas divides the various uses of the word passion not into three senses but instead into four, A, passive reception, B, a movement of the appetitive rather than the cognitive faculty, C, a movement of an appetitive faculty that is embodied, and D, a movement of an embodied appetitive faculty when that movement involves deterioration, like getting sick. I'm not suggesting that this passage contradicts what Aquinas said earlier. As we noted already, even if Aquinas doesn't narrow things down to the appetitive faculties in Question 22, Article 1, he does do that in Article 2. But still, it's very helpful to see the longer list of four, and it's especially helpful to see B listed as a sense of passion. I really think that this is the sense of passion that is most prominently at work in the treatise on the passions. Receptive movements of the appetitive appetite, whether they are bodily or not. Yes, bodily appetites are more properly said to be passions, but Aquinas is not all that concerned with propriety in the treatise on the passions. He's basically just going to relax and talk about the whole range of our repetitive and emotional life. The distinction between more proper and less proper uses of a word isn't the same as the distinction between correct and incorrect uses of a word. It's more like the distinction between nitpicky uses and not so nitpicky uses. It's okay not to be nitpicky sometimes. In his valuable study, The Logic of Desire, Aquinas, on Emotion, Nicholas Lombardo discusses passions in this broader sense under the heading of affections of the soul, a term that Aquinas uses sometimes. It's useful to distinguish affections from passions in this way, especially when your focus is on questions of metaphysics, natural philosophy, and philosophical anthropology. A movement of the soul that essentially involves the body is different from one that doesn't. And Aquinas clearly is focusing on this sort of distinction in certain places in the treatise on the passions. Um, So on the charts I gave you, I listed pleasure and pain in column seven. But Aquinas sort of goes out of his way to distinguish pleasure, a body involving passion, from joy, which is not in itself bodily. And he distinguishes pain and sorrow in the same way. Okay, So on the other hand, he does not always see fit to police the border between bodily and non-bodily passions. I think that makes sense. To understand your own life and the lives of others, it's very helpful to be aware of what passions are at play. But in many contexts, it doesn't matter whether the passions are essentially bodily or only accidentally bodily. Think of two guys who neglect their families. One, because he is controlled by a love of mathematics. The other, because he is controlled by a love of football. It's likely enough that the football fan's passions, excitement, anger, and the rest, are more bodily than those of the math fan. But that's not the crucial issue for the spiritual advisor or the marriage counselor. This guy needs to rein it in. And he needs to subordinate his desires to his calling as a husband. It's not super important that the one guy is screwing up his marriage for a spiritual purpose. (laughs) So my point is that although Aquinas does spend some time distinguishing bodily from non-bodily passions, and he does assert that bodily passions are passions in the more proper sense, in the end, this distinction doesn't make a big difference to how he proceeds in the treatise on the passions. It's something he's quite happy to nerd out about in certain contexts, but in other contexts, he just kind of ignores it. So I want to conclude with a brief comment on the place of the passions in human life. The first thing to say is that humans do have passions, and leaving that out of our analysis would be a really bad idea. The second thing to say is that passions aren't part of human life in the way the disease is. In fact, the passions are good. They are the ways in which we respond on the appetitive side to good and evil. To lack passions would mean ultimately that the difference between good and evil was something we took no stand on, something that made no difference to our actions. Actually, it would mean something more than that. Because actions are, by their very nature, aimed at goods, or at least at apparent goods, If we had no passions, we literally could not act. The third thing I want to say is this. Because passions follow from apprehensions of objects as good or bad, there's such a thing as appropriate or inappropriate passions. Nowadays, people like to say, your feelings are your feelings. And that's fine if it means that you have to begin by acknowledging where you are. But if it means that there's no such thing as incorrect emotions, then it's definitely wrong. I say this in order to recruit you to join me in opposing a certain evil and a rather arduous evil at that. Namely, the overly emotional and passionate nature of our society. So many people are just out of control. Thomists can be part of the solution, but we have to recognize that there's a problem and we have to see it rightly. It's not enough to praise the goodness of the human passions and to affirm that strong passions can be part of a virtuous life, as if we are still fighting the possibly imaginary problems of overly stoical 1940s American Catholicism. People nowadays need to hear and to see modeled in our behavior the message that the passions need to be subject to reason. In some cases, this might be obvious. I suppose no one in this room thinks that Americans are insufficiently passionate about sex. But let me mention something else, namely anger. Yes, it's true that there's such a thing as righteous anger. And insufficient anger is a fault. But when you notice how angry so many people are and so often, you might be forgiven for thinking that what we need right now is to dial back a bit on the anger As Aquinas says in the Secunda Secundae, Question 157, Article 2, reply to the second objection, the virtuous habit with regard to anger is closer to being less angry than it is to being more angry. I realize that this is a tricky issue, and I won't be even a little bit surprised if someone stands up and tells me that the real problem with our society is that we aren't nearly angry enough. I think that for every person who isn't angry enough, there are probably 10 who are too angry. To conclude, having good passions is a key part of being a flourishing human being. But it's very hard because it requires that those passions be subject to reason, which is a hard thing to accept and a harder thing to accomplish. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gorman. So one of the most striking things that um, Augustine said in chapter 3, I think, of the Confessions is, what is the point of the liberal arts when I am a slave to evil lusts? And so he makes this distinction between learning Aristotle and learning all this virtue through philosophy to actually living it out. Um, What would be Aquinas' response to that? Can we learn to be virtuous through educating ourselves on these passions? And Also, what would your response be to that? Yeah, so I think Aquinas would agree with that. And I mean, Aristotle himself, Yeah, Aristotle himself says um, something like, certainly, like in his book, The Ethics, he says, certainly no one's going to become good by reading books, (laughs) right? So actually, like cognitive discussions, reading books, even learning about passions and what's good and bad in passion, that can help. It can be part of the picture. I found it's quite interesting. You know, you, you read all these descriptions of the different passions, and it just seems so weirdly abstract and cut and dry. But I found that if you try to remember the things that Aquinas says, it's some time when you're upset and say like, what is the passion? What do you say about, it? and sort of work through it. It helps you sort your life out a little bit, okay? But um, you can be quite good at that and still be you know, completely out of control, subject to evil lusts or whatever Augustine says. So the, the, the philosophical answer to how you get your passions under control is a lot more practical. You have to sort of practice. You have to um, calm yourself down or arouse yourself in the right circumstances until you've built up habits, as we say, of responding correctly. And for this really to be effective, it has to start with your, your parents or whoever's in charge of you getting you to do this. So Aristotle says that children have to be taught to feel pleasure and pain in the right way. You can't just let them go crazy until they're 15 and then now try to solve the problem. Um, and when you see people trying to do that, it's very sad because it's pretty hard. You know, your 15-year-old daughter is calling from Las Vegas. She's with her 30-year-old boyfriend. Now what are you going to do? You know? So, um, so it requires, like, practical training. And I use the same word that we use for dogs because there is something very practical uh, and bodily, really, about training the passions. The children need their passions trained, and then as you get older, you start doing it to yourself. Now, just to make it even more complicated, there's ways in which grace can influence us on a deeper level and carry us to a higher level. But and is that okay? I mean, is, am I addressing? Yeah. Yes. It's yes. Cer- books are certainly not enough. Could you say something about the virtues that are appropriate for the passions? Um, but Dominic, uh, Father Dominic, has a, has yeah. a, has a finger too.
2: I just wanted to say something very quick, which is uh, following up on this that you know there's a approach psychological approach cognitive therapy which can be helpful yeah. for some people and that's like figuring out what I'm actually feeling um, and also it's a reason why I think it's helpful to talk to other people about um, and especially wise people about y- what's going on in your life because sometimes someone else can be like it seems like you're really like what you're really upset about is this and that can just be really helpful to you don't always recognize what you're actually angry about. Um, And I found that in forming priests to hear confessions, this is actually very helpful. It's like the way a doctor learns diseases, uh, you know, someone giving advice to other people needs to understand the passions and even more the virtues and the vices, uh, because then you really are able to help people uh, sort of, figure out what's going on with their life and how they can respond to what they're experiencing.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll just add that sometimes people talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, and so you learn not only to think better but also to act better, and that's going to bounce back and help your thoughts get into it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the – I agree with all that, and I think that's – like, it helps people get at the root of it right? If you just go, um, you know, and tell your confessor, well, I did this, and he says, that's bad. And you're like, I know, that's why I said it. I mean, that's good, <laughs> right? But um, sometimes it's good if someone says, so, like, what's going on here? Right? And if you figure out why you do that, then you can start to address it on a, you can get at the roots of the problem. Yeah, th- so the, the, the um, virtues, um, I wish I had an answer in a can for this. So, um, There's a a whole set of virtues, which unfortunately are called the moral virtues, um, which sort of are are, um, temper, moderate, uh, well, not just moderate, but which um, enhance and perfect, that's the word I'm looking for, that enhance and perfect the appetitive side of our nature. um, And so if you have all of these moral virtues, then you're going to ap- uh, re- respond correctly um, in your passions, not just in your actions. You'll actually feel appropriately. Now, um, how the, the list, there's, um, it's, I have to think a little bit more about like a nice canned way of explaining how the different ways of dividing up the passions corresponds to the different ways of of dividing up the virtues. Like in one place, Aquinas says, he divides, he distinguishes um, justice, um, fortitude, and temperance by saying justice deals with other people and the other two deal with yourself. And then fortitude deals with passions that prevent you from doing something um, that you should do. And temperance deals with passions that encourage you to do something that you shouldn't do. I don't think that maps super straightforwardly onto this, Um, but what moderates are, I mean, a virtue is an enhancement and perfection of a power, and so uh, these moral virtues improve our repetitive powers so that they respond correctly, and when they do, then you're going to feel all of these different passions in the right way at the right time. Okay, I
0: have, um, it's not a question. I just want to, like, hear your commentary on this. Um, but, yeah, I'm just, I'm curious if, yeah, maybe the answer is just the fall, but I'm I'm just curious with the passions why, like, why they get out of whack or why the bodily is out of whack, because I would assume that the intellect is what informs all of your, all of the things that you decide to like. Right, oh, good. So, yeah, like, you, and you even said, like, you perceive something as in a certain way, like as a, as a doorknob or as a door hinge or something. So you'd perceive it as good and then you'd want it. So is there any other reason that the- Yeah,
1: be- good. So let me think about this. Okay, so you can insist if you want, and there's a lot to be said for carrying this pretty far, um, on the idea that your passions are downstream from your apprehensions of things so when you have bad desires, it's basically because you're being stupid. Okay, there's a lot to be said for that idea, but it's, that's too simplistic. It's more complicated than that. Um, because often it's not really that you're being stupid, but you're not paying attention, or you're not paying attention to the things in the right way. So every few years you'll see an article in the press about somebody who gets badly injured because he's using a match to look to see whether there's gas in his gas tank. Now, it's not that he doesn't know that like gasoline vapors are flammable and that a match is a flame. He knows all that stuff, but he's not putting it together at the right time, okay? (laughs) No, um, but now, why not? Well, maybe he's just stupid, but I don't think that's enough, right? That's not a really good explanation. His desire to see, to know whether he's got gas or enough is so strong that it causes him to not pay attention. He's just riveted on this question, Right? So his desire, I mean, it sounds very high-minded, and in a way it is. You know. His passion to know the truth about the gas tank is so strong that, I mean, this terrible thing happens. So um, our passions can influence how we apprehend things. And so often the reason we think incorrectly about things is because of our passions. And it doesn't always happen in a really dramatic way. I mean, sometimes, you know, you imagine someone kind of salivating and panting, and this is the passions. But, you know, there have been many times in history where someone is sitting very coolly at a desk, designing evil, and it's very calm and rational in a way. But he's filled with passion, hatred or greed or whatever. So, um, and it distorts his thinking, and he just doesn't notice things. And, you know, we, you know, I mean, we all have this experience, right? If you really want to do something, then all of a sudden, all the moral rules that you've been taught, they seem kind of simplistic. It's really, actually, really complicated. I mean, I know it's Good Friday, but, like, this is a really good hamburger, and, and God's creation is good, and we're supposed to r- rejoice in the goodness of creation. You know? Everything seems so complicated. <laughs> yeah. So, so now, then you can add extra things on top of this, right? Um, it's just we're sort of, we're in trouble already because, because of the fall, right? Just from birth, we have trouble getting our passions under this way of reason. And then finally, I would add, I mean, this is actually a sub version of that, but I think it w- merits special mention. This can b- be something that's real on the physiological side. Um, I mean Aristotle talks about the way which people some people are born more inclined to develop certain vices or virtues it's gonna be easier or harder for certain people and you know we know more about the physiological basis of this now than Aristotle sure did but um, um, some people like it's just what they're either through birth or something that has happened to them along the way it's going to be very hard for them to ever really get it under control. And they may never really get it under control. I mean, I think that that people, we all, uh, work within these constraints like that. You can't always just grit your teeth through everything.
0: That is a type of error which could be made, but I'm wondering whether Aquinas distinguishes between the different types of errors which can lead to mistaken passions. Like... You could use the match with the gasoline example, but to go back to your example of like seeing the dollar on the ground, it seems in one case, like there could be poison on the dollar and that's a kind of error. It could also be, you haven't realized that money is in fact evil and you shouldn't desire it. That's not a perceptual error of the same sort, or it could be, there is not in fact a dollar there. It's a hologram or you're in another way mistaken. Um, So it seems like all of these things can lead to passions which are incorrect in the same way that like you should not have the passion to strike the match and right. when you're near the gas tank. That's but a, yes, does this mean that there are different ways, does Aquinas give a classification of the different ways that all of these passions are disordered if we have sort of the, we're perceiving correctly, but we're not perceiving yeah. with the right concepts or so on and so forth? Yeah,
1: okay, so I'm sure he does. I'm, I can't think of it. There's probably more than one and they're not exactly the same as one another because that's usually how it rolls. But, I'll mention one <laughs> distinction, um, which is that um, sometimes what you're, you're missing is a particular fact, either because you just don't know it or you're not thinking about Okay, so first of all, there are things that you simply don't know. I'm going to make two distinctions now. One is stuff that you simply don't know. You didn't know that there was poison on it. Another is that you know it, but you're not thinking about it. That's the gas can guy. Okay. And then the other distinction is between knowledge of particulars and knowledge of, you know, universals or general principles. So, like, if you um, are standing in a cafeteria line and you shove the person in front of you, and it's the university president, you you didn't know it was the university president, right? But that's a different case from if you just don't know that, it's it's a sort of especially wrong to shove the university president. It's like it's even worse, right? Because if and if like you might go, oh really? You should give more respect and deference to the university president, huh? I never. I don't know. I'll think about that, right? So that's someone who doesn't grasp a universal. But other times he grasps the universal. He just doesn't realize that this guy is the president. So there's two distinctions. But I'm sure there's more. It's
2: on. So I I had a uh, a reaction when you I had a bodily reaction when you said that. Uh, the love of mathematics is not a bodily passion. Uh, I'm not a mathematician, but in any case, um, that's a cute way of saying I'm not, I think that my
1: impression is that all passions are bodily and they may be about bodily things or not about bodily things. Is that, I guess, is that
2: in Thomas or is that incorrect? Okay,
1: so I will double check. I I hope I was slightly more cautious than that. But anyway, let me just address this question. So can there be bodily passions about mathematics? Um, I think what Aquinas would say here is that your delight in having proved the theorem is in itself not bodily, but that often non-bodily passions spill over and arouse bodily passions as well. So it's a kind of a fine distinction, um, but he's aware of the fact that sometimes purely intellectual delights or sorrows also um, cause bodily reactions. Um, and that, I think there's something right about trying to make this distinction. Um, and it's, you know, like, like, there is the distinction, but it's also important to realize that um, it sometimes really does happen that intellectual um, passions, so to speak, um, spill over and, and really make a big difference to our bodily life. I mean, you're excited, your heart is pumping, or you're just feeling depressed and things like that. Somebody could object, right? They could say, well, how can your body care about math, right? And I think the answer is, well, it's your body, and you are a rational a rational animal. And so our bodily life gets caught up in the life of reason. I mean, this is one thing I might mean by... by you know, a harshing on Descartes, right? It's not like we do intellectual things and then bodily things go along in parallel, but your bodily life gets caught up in your rational life. Yeah. I
3: want to defend 11. So anger, uh, anger being the 11th passion, um, oh the reason for this, I think, in Aquinas' thought, is anger has a twofold tendency towards vengeance, which is an evil, but then also towards the pleasure of succeeding in vengeance, which is a good. And so I think in a certain way, your chart could be misleading because anger actually should basically be at under eight in both columns because it has, it has a good and a bad object. It's a complex oh. passion. So I would just be interested what you – this is um, Prima Secundae 46.2. This is where he kind of spells that out. How would you, how would you think about gratitude factoring in there? because it seems like anger accounts for both the good and the bad object. You could also say, you could also say when you're uni- united as something that was irascible, it's no longer arduous, right? Like if gratitude, yeah, you're no there's nothing that. arduous about gratitude once you're, you know, thanking well, the object of gratitude.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think he, he says in a way that he says that about anger too, right? It's, it's there's nothing arduous anymore. It got you. <laughs> right? It is arduous because it's arduous to overcome. Yeah, but once it's... That's what, that's what, that is, that's no, but he also says that, yes, but the, the badness of being gotten has sort of taken out of the arduous. Well, it's bad the pain, it's pain actually. That's difficult to overcome. Yeah, but the presentness of it gives rise to the pain, which is a uh, concupiscible past. That's true. That's a yeah. side effect, though. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I will think about that more. I mean, the question of um, anger. And its goal is complicated. And it, Well, first of all, wait, I'm going to say two things. First of all, I could accept all of that and then also b- try to bring in gratitude anyway, right? I don't think these things are quite incompatible with one another. But I get your point that um, anger gives rise to I – mean, anger is less passive, right? You now have a new goal. I'm going to get that guy. Um, and it's interesting to think about whether you should now move back earlier on the chart and have a new goal which is a desire for passion and just think of that as a kind of um, moving back and starting up with a new passion. He doesn't exactly put it that way but in one place he says it's kind of like a combination of sorrow and desire and stuff like that. I, I, that's, I, that's, you're, you're right that to just put it in terms of the um, bad object, is not enough. It's, it results from this unfortunate encounter with the bad object, but then it arouses a new object which has a good side to it. And uh, that's not reflected in here. And in um, thinking more about anger, you'd want to do that. That's helpful. Thank you.